Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly horrifying knowledge scream case starring some of the ghoulish geniuses that bring the YouTube series SciShow to life. This week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chen, also known as the Horror of Party Beach. Stefan, what's your favorite kind of candy? Oh, Skittles, probably. What? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that that's <laughs> a thing that anyone thinks. What? They make that's your good. snot so thick. It's great. <laughs> I thought that was definitely going to be a bad thing about them, but no. <laughs> or like like watermelon, those sour watermelon wedges. Mm. Now we're talking. You guys like the pure sugar candies, huh? Yeah, mm. I don't want anything getting in the way. <laughs> you want to eat candy that's going to ruin your whole next day. <laughs> All right, Stefan, what's your tagline? Garbanzo wheels. Oh, that's not going to work no. out well. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> though. Who knows? We are also joined, as always, by Sam Schultz, a.k.a. the head that wouldn't die. If I was going to have a head, I'd probably want one that stayed alive as long as possible, I guess. Yeah. What's your tagline? It's monster surfing time. And we are also joined by Sari Riley, a.k.a. the Adam Age Vampire. Sari, what's your tagline? A wee little snail. Mm. And I'm Hank Green, and my favorite candy is orange slices. Wait, like real orange slices or those candy type orange slices? No, the candy orange slices. (laughs) (laughs) With the crusty sugar on them. Yeah, those are great. And my tagline is all's hell. (laughs) <laughs> in fire and dancing. 
Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to freak out and frighten and terrify each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score and awarding sandbucks from week to week. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but we aren't always great at that. So if the rest of the team deems your tangent unworthy, we will force you to go up one of your sandbucks. So tangent with care. And for this most horrifying month of all, we're doing things a little differently. Each week in October, we will be talking about science related to, inspired by, or just sort of vaguely reminiscent of classic horror monsters. And now, as always, we will summon this week's monster with the traditional science incantation this week from me. Once upon an evening smoky, while I ate an artichoke, Uh I googled odd facts with which I hoped to increase my score. While I googled changing phrasing, suddenly, a fact amazing, a fact so damn amazing, I was bound once more to score. This is great, I shouted. They will pick this one for sure, and my score will then be more. Ah, distinctly I remember, the fact was a contender, the greatest fact I'd ever found in all of Tangent's lore. Eagerly I wished to tell them these facts, I would expel them from my mouth and to their ears, these facts they would adore. I would yell and shout and share them, and these facts they would adore. And then we would call them Hank Bucks once more. (laughs) (laughs) But then a scraping, scraping, and a mouth lolling, gaping. It wrenched into my office, left the hinges hanging from the door. It shocked the fact out from my head. Only fear was left instead. It then destroyed my computer and left it in pieces on the floor. The fact too good, it was destroyed by this zombie on the floor. I would remember it. Nevermore. Oh my uh. God, that was super meta. <laughs> so yes, the topic for the day is the living dead. Sari, what is what is the what are the living dead? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also called undead. Something mm-hmm. when something is dead, it is no longer living. But then the living dead is when you loop de loop that back around again and take a corpse and make it living again. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just go ahead and say this. I think that if something is moving around, that it's alive. Oh. <laughs> so there's no such but, thing as the living dead. There's just the well, living. Well, I think but, it's more about it's like past status. Yeah. Like I've graduated from college. This skeleton was once dead and now it is living again. <laughs> right. Something okay. like that. And also graduated from college with you. Yeah. <laughs> it is also my best friend. <laughs> it feels like there's there's also like the past past status because like if you animate a mm. puppet that was never alive. It's not sure. the living right. dead. Nope. It's just an it's animated puppet. puppet. True. That's yeah. true. It had to be That's alive, great. then it died, and then somehow, in some form, it's back. Terrific point. But if a zombie is alive, then Chucky is alive. Well, Chucky's a human soul trapped in a doll's body, so yeah. that's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> are ghosts undead? I think oh. they're still dead. I think ghosts are alive. Oh, I'm just going to say it. I think they're alive, and I think they can vote. <laughs> yeah, I think they should be allowed to vote. I think the living have to be fully in this dimension, and I imagine ghosts as as peeking through some other dimension. So this is an important conversation. Yeah, they're alive in that other dimension. That doesn't mean that they're not alive. I also don't really want ghosts to vote because there's a <laughs> lot of like old people. Oh, that's true. With, like <laughs> really they're very white. may not yeah. line yeah. up with our, <laughs> our current values. But maybe they bring otherworldly wisdom back with them from the other side. Nah. 
Oh. Seems unlikely. I think they would just be like kind of racist and mean. <laughs> <laughs> but you at home should vote. And if you want to <laughs> check if you're registered, go to vote.org. And if you want to see how to vote in your state, go to How to Vote in Every State, the YouTube channel, where there's a less than three minute long guide that teaches you all about how to get your sample ballot, how to check if you're registered, where your polling place is going to be, and when you can vote and how you can vote early, whether absentee or at a polling location. Mm. How to Vote in Every State on YouTube. Check it out. You could have at least said it in a spooky voice. The deadline for registration has already passed in some states. (laughs) So go now! Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Did you look up anything about the etymology of the living dead or the history of them or anything? I looked up undead and dead, and those were pretty boring mm-hmm. because <laughs> those are another thing where it's like we had to have a name for a thing for death. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that word came pretty early on yeah. and sounded fairly like dead. But zombie is kind of cool because mm. it is a word of West African origin And it was when slaves were brought over to Haiti and uh, other parts of the Caribbean during the 18th and early 19th centuries, they brought their religious beliefs and practices with them. And so that is how zombie was learned by the English language. Do we know where that word comes from? It was originally the name of a snake god, possibly, and then got attributed a meaning of reanimated corpse in voodoo or adjacent religions. I didn't look in further than that because it's probably uh, much more complicated, but it seems like it had a similar meaning when it was integrated into English for the first time of like living dead. And that means it's time for... One of our panelists has prepared three spooky science facts with which to torment us, but only one of them is real. The other three panelists have to figure out either by deduction or wild guess, which is the true fact. If we do, we get a sandbuck. If not, then Stefan gets the sandbuck. Stefan, what are your three undead facts? You've all probably heard about this, that fungus that can infect certain kinds of ants and turn them mm-hmm. into like zombie ants and their bodies get eaten away and eventually they end up like clamping down on part of a leaf and they just hang out there and their bodies waste away but the the fungus like grows little spores out of its head and spreads its spores onto the ground i assume but this is actually a whole group of fungi that do this each fungus has one species that it infects so here are three facts that are related to zombie making fungi number 1 Carpenter ants infected with Ophiocordyceps unilateralis usually end up dead on a leaf with a stalk of fungal spores sticking out from the tops of their heads. And the Brazilian tree hopper, who's a sapsucker and thus also tends to be hanging out on leaves, has evolved a structure on its head that closely resembles the fungal stalks protruding from the infected ants. Scientists at first thought they were trying to deter predators by looking like an infected ant, but it turned out that they are actually used for sexual selection, and the resemblance to the fungal spores is a bit of a coincidence. But they did observe tree hoppers attempting to mate with dead ants who had apparently impressive headstocks. Oh boy. So number two, male cicadas infected with Massaspora cicadina? will begin acting like female cicadas, doing a characteristic wing-flicking behavior to try to attract other males. And then those other uninfected males who are wooed by this flicking will come over to see what's going on, and they'll end up getting infected by the fungus. 
But all of these nice. infected cicadas will go on to try to mate with females as well, which further spreads the infection. Or number three, some ant colonies that are susceptible to these fungi cultivate their own parasitic fungus that fights back against the zombie fungus. Through the ants' grooming behaviors, the hyperparasitic defense fungus is spread throughout the colony, causing many of the ants to be protected from getting infected. They have a good guy fungus. Mm -hmm. So our three facts are Brazilian tree hoppers will sometimes try to mate with infected ants because the fungal spores protruding from their heads look like tree hopper headstocks. Two, infected male cicadas will flick their wings like females that attracts other males that come to them thinking they are females. They also get infected and then they go and infect females too. Or number three, some ant colonies cultivate a fungus and spread it around to protect the colony from a different mind-controlling fungus. Oh boy, those all seem totally, completely likely. I really like the one where the male cicadas are like forced by the fungus to act like female cicadas to, to infect more male cicadas. Does that mean it's harder to find good. a female cicada to infect or why? I don't understand why they're, they're doing that, I guess. They both are initially infected in the early stages, but part of the, what helps spread it around faster is that the male cicadas are acting like females. So they're okay. just encouraging more fraternization. Oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> does the fungus do something bad to them or is the fungus just like to hang out in cicadas and that's that? Oh, the, the, all of these funguses, I think all of them do some pretty nasty shit. Starts with a wing flick and then your entire insides are eaten out. Uh, <laughs> is it just me sucks. or like, I feel like I first heard about this like zombie ant fungus like four years ago. Mm -hmm. And now there's like an, there's like a fungus for every insect that like turns them into a zombie mm -hmm. and then grows out of their head. Did we not know about this? And then suddenly we did, or like, was it just the scientists were like, oh yeah, that's a thing. But it's not that interesting, is it? It does appear that most of what we've learned has happened in the last decade. I don't know if it was completely unknown before that or if we just like didn't mm. study it until about yeah. a decade ago. Right. Maybe the fungus can read the internet and they're like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and they all just start. To <laughs> I'll try that out. <laughs> we should stop giving them such good ideas because yeah. the last thing I want to do is climb to the top of a tree and have a fungus grow out of my head. Uh. I I mean, I know that ant, some ant colonies cultivate fungus. Yeah. The leaf cutter ants do that. They feed their fungus the leaves and then they eat the fungus. So maybe it's not that one. I think I'm going <laughs> to go with number one just because I like I like the style of that story. It sounds funny. You just like it when animals get tricked into humping stuff. No, not dead stuff. <laughs> no. That is how that story ended. Isn't that? I like animals with funny things on their heads. I'm going to go with the cicadas. Just cause. I think I'm gonna go. Ooh, I'm gonna go with cicadas too. Mm, it's the right one, isn't it? I don't know. We're about to find out. But you can vote at twitter.com/scishowtangents which one you think is the true fact, and that will give us way more than just three data points on how well Stefan did the fooling. <laughs> Stefan, which is the true fact? It is the cicadas. So apparently oh. not yes. very well. <laughs> When they all emerge, only about 5% of them or less than 5% of them are infected. So it, it'll spread, but like part of what it's doing is, is having these males act like females to try to increase the amount of canoodling that's happening and help it spread faster. But over time, with all of these, I think it, it kind of eats away most of the body parts of the animal. 
But in this case, the cicada's abdomens fill with like the powdery fungal spores until it bursts open or falls off. And then that takes the genitals with it, I guess. But despite this, the cicadas are apparently fine. They just like they act pretty normally. They're just flying around doing cicada shit. But that like lets them spread these fungal spores all over the place. And they keep trying to mate with other other females. So why do their genitals fall off? <laughs> well, it's just uh, why is a really maybe more involved question than I can answer. But my, my assumption is that the genitals are, are part of the abdomen. And so it just like falls off or explodes. They, they lose their genitals. So it's kind of like... <laughs> Those are two oh. very different things. <laughs> oh no! I hope nothing makes my oh abdomen my fall off or explode ever. Or explode, yeah. yeah. I, I, those those sound equally bad to me. <laughs> you know, I'm so happy to be my species. Yeah, yeah. not a bug. Poor it's bugs. <laughs> so the ant colony thing. There, there is a what they call a hyperparasitic fungus that some of these ant colonies have that attacks the mind controlling fungus and prevents it from being able to spread the spores. As far as I know, they do not cultivate it, and I don't Mm. know anything about the grooming behaviors. Uh, Like, I think ants do have some grooming behaviors, but I don't know if that contributes to anything here. But the other thing is that this protective fungus doesn't actually protect the infected ants. It only protects the colony. And so the ants that are infected will still die. Like, so this fungus will make them, like, march to us a particular place and like all the ants who are infected march to the same place. So you get this like pile of dead ants that are Ooh, infected. But if they are also infected with the good fungus, then 94% of the bad fungal spores are not able to spread themselves. Uh, and so it, it neuters the bad fungus in some way. Why did you think about Brazilian tree hoppers mating with infected ants? Yeah, that, why did you well, think that about brain that come from? That one came to me while I was in the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was a shower thoughts. And I was like, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good lie. <laughs> you just thought uh, of that. Okay. So you should definitely Google these Brazilian tree hoppers. They're little, they, they don't, they're, I don't think they're beetles, but they're little tree hoppers and they look like they have Four oh my God. hairy balls on their head, basically. <laughs> yeah, it, it's no, like very weird. Oh no, I really <laughs> hate them a lot. That's, that sounds like you're being, you know, glib, but no, no, four, four to five hairy balls. <laughs> yeah. They don't think that they're for sexual selection because the females also have them. They think that maybe the hairs are like sensory. And so maybe there's some like tactile feedback that they're getting. But it's probably not bad to mimic the infected ants because predators probably aren't going to go after them. So I think that's the that's maybe the leading hypothesis there. But they don't know. It's really troubling. It's a challenging. It's a challenging bug. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next up, we're going to crawl into our coffins for a short nap. Then it will be time for the fact off. Show Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Merriam-Webster 
<laughs> used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand, the only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary-defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, They sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks, and we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850+, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. (laughs) It's not (laughs) what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea and mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 plus Manuka honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. Video games, art-making programs, food delivery services, these things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast aspersions? Dispersions? Aspersions. One of those. But... It does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun Mm -hmm. burns out. And you know what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow. If there's there's a constant drain on the the bean, that (laughs) is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond, I mean beans, and beyond subscription canceling, (laughs) Rocket Money helps you build budgets, track your spending, and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) 
different kind of bean, I guess. A, a cheaper, more yeah. of a cheaper type you of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. <laughs> yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. <laughs> Subscription <laughs> companies hate this one simple trick because you figured out their plot. And now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting <laughs> money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans, cancel your <laughs> unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Opening the coffin door. <laughs> We're back, everybody. Sam Buck totals. Sari with one, Stefan with one, Sam with none, and I am in the lead with two. But I can't get any more points. Mm. And now it's time for Sam and Sari to compete in the fact off. They have each brought science facts to present to us in an attempt to scare off our pants. The presenters each have a Sam Buck to award that the fact that they like the most and to decide who goes first. Here is our trivia question. Because of a copyright mistake, the 1968 movie Night of the Living Dead is in the public domain and has numerous unofficial remakes and spinoffs. Mm-hmm. How many official films are in the original Night of the Living Dead series? Oh, a fraught question. I don't I don't know. Ooh. Okay. Um, Sarah, you I go I was going to complain about the question <laughs> because, like, I have no clue and you watch movies. Yeah. <laughs> Sam's like, oh, well, my educated guess is going to be (laughs) potentially wrong and I'm going to feel bad about it. So you should just take whatever Sam says and add or subtract one. That is what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for Sam to give the first answer. Okay, 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 wait. So there's five movies that comprise the storyline of Night of the Living Dead. Those five movies have been remade various times. Oh, no. I'm going to go with five. I'm going to go with four. Oh, Oh, God. Okay. The answer is six. What's yeah. What are they? Do you know? No one besides you cares. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I want Sari to go first. To lean into my molecular biology background, when we're talking about death on a cellular level, what happens to DNA is really important. Sometimes too much DNA damage leads the body to say abort and the cells rot away, or sometimes cell death happens intentionally and there are enzymes that chop up chromosomes into bite-sized pieces or organelles like lysosomes, which are kind of like the garbage disposal in a sink, but with stuff in a cell, you shove it in there and then it gets chopped up. But the point of this is that DNA getting chopped up usually means death, but bodies work in very, very weird ways and sometimes cells totally defy these patterns. For example, there's a mutational process called chromothripsis, chromo referring to chromosome and thripsis referring to shattering into pieces, which sounds bad or maybe even impossible because of all this stuff with cell death. But especially in the past decade or so, scientists have observed these chromothripsis events corresponding with cancer cells. So instead of gradual DNA mutations, there is one explosive event of a chromosome basically bursting into smaller bits and it gets restitched together like a Frankenstein's monster with some deleted <laughs> pieces, extra amplification of other pieces and the order all mixed up. And it looks so it like generically looks like a chromosome, but all the contents are mushy and bad. And genes that spur cancer development called oncogenes proliferate somehow. Scientists aren't really sure how all these mechanisms work. And sometimes they even incorporate DNA bits from other chromosomes to form a stabilized structure called a neochromosome, which sounds cool, 
but really it's just like if a chromosome is a normal living body, the neochromosome is Frankenstein's monster with all these bits and pieces hacked together that maybe shouldn't function, but it is, and it's in cancer cells. And it's not a one in a million thing. Neochromosomes have been found in around 3% of all cancers, but especially certain subtypes like liposarcomas in fatty tissues and some brain and blood cancers. So understanding how these Frankenstein monsters form will be key to adding more treatments to our cancer fighting toolkit. So this is a, a thing that happens. It causes cancer where a chromosome explodes and recreates itself in a bad way. <laughs> Yes. I refuse to accept. <laughs> is it ever a good thing? I don't think so. Oh. I think it's a process that has only been discovered as a way to create a cancer-causing chromosome arrangement. And it's like mm. an alternate hypothesis to the idea that all these mutations are really gradual. Now they're mm -hmm. finding that there are these neochromosomes that by mathematical models and, and tests had to have or like most likely formed by shattering oh. and then recombining. Do we know what to do about it? <laughs> no, we don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just like, well, it's in 3% of cancer. So that's like a relatively small subset. It's non-negligible, but it, it would, I guess, be a preventative measure if we try to control this explosion somehow, because like by the time the cancerous cells are proliferating, the abnormal chromosome is already assembled. And so I think it's more of just an understanding of how these things came to be. Sam, what's your fact? Hey, I also have a story about our good friend Frankenstein. Okay. <laughs> uh, in many depictions of Frankenstein making his monster, one of the most prominent aspects is the doctor procuring and placing a brain in his new monster's body. Mm -hmm. Usually it seems like this procedure doesn't go so good because it sort of seems like the brain and body don't work together and all Frankenstein can kind of do, sorry, Frankenstein's monster can kind of do <laughs> is like lurch around and scream about how horrible his new hellish existence is. <laughs> But if we could perform a brain transplant in the real world, would things go any better? So earlier this year, a team put a bunch of glass knife fish through a series of tests and took roughly 40,000 measurements regarding movement and behavior per fish. So glass knife fish, they live in streams and rivers, and they're always reacting to changes in currents to keep themselves hidden in roots mostly is like they just try to be always hidden in roots so they're not getting eaten. So the researchers were tracking how their fish subjects reacted to a tank that had different currents in it and a little like shelter that would move around the tank. So then they would zip around to hide in it. So they noticed that they were all zipping around different ways or like bigger ones were doing one thing, smaller ones were doing another thing. They took all this data and they made a computer model that had all of their fish subjects modeled in computer form with their different body sizes, swimming styles, and their little fishy <laughs> personalities all put in this computer model. So after they had all their fish modeled up in the computer, they started switching their brains around Frankenstein style to see what would happen. <laughs> what they found was that in the, in the model, not for real, because we can't, I don't <laughs> think we can switch anything's brain, can we? No. So what they found was that placing a brain in a different body had pretty much no effect on the swimming abilities or behavior of the fish as long as they were receiving sensory feedback from their virtual surroundings. So if, if there was a button clicked on that was like, this tank has changing currents, or if they could have a visual of where the moving shelter was, it seemed like their virtual brains could pretty much fill in the gaps of their brand new body to like instantly start moving around like they used to. They weren't any more clumsy or anything like that. 
And on the other hand, if the brain wasn't provided a lot of sensory feedback, then the brain wasn't able to get its bearings and it never really started to swim normally like it did before. So researchers concluded that instead of the brain being, quote, precisely tuned to mechanics of the body's muscle and skeleton, that the Mm. brain is more flexible than that. And it's using like a constantly fluctuating set of sensory inputs to guide your body more effectively. So I guess in my opinion, it seems like if you put your brain in a Frankenstein body, you'd maybe be totally fine. But people aren't fish. And this was a simulation. So who knows? <laughs> but people aren't fish and neither are these. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But they also said that it could point the way towards a future in robotics where we're just developing like a robot brain that has senses basically. And you could plop it into a body and it would teach itself how to use its body instead of having to program it to like to walk Mm. or whatever. You Mm -hmm. could just plop it in and it would teach itself how to do it eventually. I definitely think that if you put me in a body of like a seven foot tall or five foot tall person that I would not move around well. Well, that was what that was part of the reason they wanted to do this was because one of the researchers was just musing about why like tall and short people can do things like similarly well or like they have Mm -hmm. the same like reflexes and stuff why the human brain is so like elastic enough to to work in all these different kinds of situations. Okay, let's decide who is going to get the oh. points here. We have either Sari, sometimes chromosomes can shatter and then reassemble in weird ways that create undead neochromosomes that often can cause cancers. Or Sam, scientists used a computer program to put a fish's brain into a different fish's body and learn that as long as they're getting stimuli, the brains basically adapt to the vessel that they are in. So Frankenstein's totally possible. Just put my brain inside of some 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 young body. Wow, uh, that doesn't that whose back doesn't hurt. Three, two, one. Sam. Sari. Yes, mm. I can't not get points, or I'll be in last place. I don't want to be in last place. <laughs> and now it's time to ask the science couch. We've got a listener question for our crypt of finely honed scientific minds. It's from at Addy Gilio Eleven. Sorry if that's supposed to be pronounced a particular way. How close have humans come to a Frankenstein's monster situation? <laughs> ah, there's a couple, a couple of ways to think about this. The first is like we have created cells and then put other DNA, even DNA that we have created into a cell. And then it's like, this is a cell that has like entirely synthetic genome. Hmm. We've also done some really terrible, unethical things with dogs. Mm. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are dogs. And then there are also just like a variety of of animals, including Mm -hmm. human corpses that a physicist was experimenting with. Did we ever um, reanimate any of them? His name was Giovanni Aladini in the 1800s, and he just like oh. shot a bunch of electricity into them. Okay. And so like it made muscles spasm, and he was like, they're alive. And people were like, eh. <laughs> but he was like, they're alive. And it was just like highly unethical and very weird. Okay, I feel like cloned animals are vaguely... Maybe. Yeah, you can be like, can you make my dog again? Yeah. (laughs) That's definitely not it, but it's on the path. It takes up the same cognitive space in some ways. Yeah. Frankenstein wasn't trying to make like a monster. He was trying to make a dude. So if he could have (laughs) cloned, he would have. We did a head transplant with a monkey once, but they were, they was alive. Both of the monkeys were alive. Did that work? Sam, it did uh, for a period of time and it's very upsetting. Okay. Sort of along that same line, and Sam's fact, 
there was that study in April 2019 on pig brains that like blew up across the internet. Oh, right. Yeah. Sasha did a video about it and that felt Frankenstein y to me. So this is where they slaughtered. And I think, I don't know if these pigs were going to be slaughtered. I don't know like how they ethically arranged this, but they had 32 pig brains four hours after they were slaughtered and they created a system called Brain X in a specially designed chamber. You don't want to design a system called Brain X, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> to like pump blood and nutrients and other things in. But they were very careful as far as like questions of consciousness went because they pumped in chemicals to prevent the neurons from firing, oh. which is like the opposite Ooh. of what Frankenstein mm-hmm. would have done. What were they trying to do? They wanted to see if like the cellular functions would maintain without the like electrical activity that would indicate consciousness. So like some metabolic functions returned, the cells started consuming sugar and making carbon dioxide and some immune responses in the brain started happening and like some neurons still fired because that added chemical didn't suppress it completely, but it prevented like a a global kind of brain activity that would show up on an EEG and register as like a working brain. And I think they did this study mostly to like study organ transplants and like how to keep organs functional over a period of time, even after death, or if you can revive organs from death. And we've done that with like cat brains and rhesus monkey brains to like cut off blood flow. So that would get them to a point of death and then restore blood flow and be like, okay, after an hour of no blood flow, their brain is now functioning again. What's the like ultimate goal here? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, the ultimate goal, I think, honestly, a, 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 as is usually in these cases, is to make it so that I do not die. I do not want to die. And I would like to, if I die, come back from that. I think it also has to do with like doctors resuscitating. So there's a lot of like medical codes. I, I'm not a doctor. None of us are doctors. So <laughs> I don't want to like overstate this, but... About when to resuscitate someone before a point of being declared dead. And so this could like change that point a little bit of like when to continue giving care, like medical care versus when to stop that. There are decisions that need to be made with that. And so having more medical definitions of when death is and what parts of the body stop, I think are useful in making educated choices. It seems like it's sort of dictated by our technology as well, which is I guess scarier now because we are can get closer and closer to that line. Whereas like if you died in 1700, yeah. like this is a pretty clear distinction there. Like, you know, I don't think they knew CPR. They didn't have like defibrillators. You were just like done. Mm-hmm. Whereas here there's like that line is pushed a lot further and you have, I don't know, we have the technology to bring people back further from, from, from certain from, states. Yeah. yeah. Like you get to die more than once kind yeah. of situation. Which I guess is good if we can if we can keep oh, people yeah. alive, but it's just it's kind of weird. So really we defined living dead way to 17th century with mm-hmm. like you must die, be buried, then crawl out with dirt all over yep. you. Really, yeah. you can be resuscitated <laughs> and the living dead walk among yeah. us. There are there's there are probably some undead people listening to this podcast right now. We're glad you're here. (laughs) We're so glad you're here. If you want to ask your question to the Science Crypt, follow us 
at SciShowTangents on Twitter, where we'll tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at FutureNovas, at 42Griffy, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this episode. Final Sandbuck scores. Sam and Stefan are tied with one. Sari and Hank are tied for the lead with two. And that means that I am just two points behind Sam. I have a chance of not coming in last, but we are both very behind Sari and Stefan, who are tied for the lead. It's a close race. 71 points each. Wow, you guys. Jeez. I'm glad that I'm not in the lead there because that would make me nervous. (laughs) It's stressful. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's very easy to do that. You can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show and maybe makes an algorithm happy. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from this episode. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell tell people people about us. Thank you for joining us. I have been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroka Matsushima. Our social media organizer is Paula Garcia-Prieto. Our editorial assistant is Daboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish. And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a coffin to be filled, but a jack-o'-lantern to be lighted. But, one more thing. (laughs) When are you alive but also maybe a little bit dead inside? Well, maybe when you're dealing with dead butt syndrome. (laughs) It has another name, gluteus medius tendinopathy or gluteal amnesia, which is what happens when you've been sitting for so long that your butt gets numb or starts to like sing out with, with, with nerve pain. Either my butt is always numb or my butt never gets numb. I don't really know. It never feels any different. Well, then you don't have, you don't have dead butt syndrome. Okay, good. <laughs> it's just sort of like your tongue. You ignore it after a little while. It's like, ah, uh, just a butt. Yeah, it's yeah, like, all, but well, it's like all, uh, yeah. all the parts of my body. I don't <laughs> yeah. notice them until they give me a hard time. <laughs> Just uh, go surf TikTok for a while while you're on the on the toilet.